Bibles now to 1 John chapter 4. First uh, John chapter 4, and it's been quite a while since our last lesson, a long time as a matter of fact, and I appreciate what John had to say in his prayer because he said, uh, let's pray that the pra- pastor has clarity when he preaches. And believe me, getting clarity back after vacation and finding out where I was in the middle of these series and what I've talked about, what I haven't talked about, and trying to pick up uh, in those is, is a little bit difficult. And so I've spent some time this week trying to catch up with uh, the different series that we're in. But this particular message goes all the way back to the beginning of June. And I, I hate to do this, but we had to split the sermon apart. And I wouldn't normally do that, but that's the way the schedule worked out, and I wasn't able to help it. So we're going to have to go back and and try to pick up some pieces of this thing again and try to get our continuity back and get back into the subject that we were discussing. And this evening we are looking at a very important part of Scripture. The Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture, the Bible says, is given for that purpose. But as we do know, there are some Scriptures that are more important for us. Some are more instructive in certain settings. And there are Scriptures that we need to know very well, make sure that we always uh, keep them in our mind. And I think that what we have here in 1 John chapter 4 is one of those Scriptures. This is something that we really have to keep closely in mind because our spiritual health and our ability to serve God depends on this. Uh, we, we, we need to understand this scripture. I have related to you on two or three occasions in the past the story of my father's conversion. Uh, when he was first saved, he was in an area uh, in Kansas where there really wasn't much gospel preaching. There wasn't a lot of uh, good doctrinal preachers that were there. In fact, the first time that he heard the gospel, he was saved. That was when he was 25 years old, and he heard a message that was preached by his cousin, who had also just been saved. After my dad got saved, he got involved with some Wesleyan Methodist, and uh, uh, to say the least, their doctrine is quite a bit different from ours, and, and we would we would certainly not agree with it, but he got involved with these Wesleyan Methodists, and he was influenced by them until he had the opportunity to go to Kentucky, and there he was able to attend a Bible institute in Lexington, Kentucky, and he learned what historical Baptists believe. And as I said, that was different from what the Wesleyan Methodists teach, and he was very strongly resistant to that doctrine when he first heard it. And that is a natural thing for people to be. The, the old flesh does not like the doctrines that we preach. It doesn't like anything that turns salvation completely over into the hands of God so that man has nothing to do with it, that it's all of God. M- most people don't teach that. And certainly the Wesleyan Methodists didn't teach that. And so he was very resistant to that doctrine at first. But finally when he started to, when he was taught and he began to look at the Bible without prejudice, without a preconceived idea of how things are supposed to work, then he began to be able to see how that it's much, much easier to take the Bible and not try to explain things away to fit those ideas. But just take the Bible simply as it says and believe it just like it says. Well, he learned to do that. 
And needless to say, probably, that if he had not changed his doctrine, if the Lord hadn't changed it, then uh, my preaching today would be very much, much different than it is. I mean, I, my doctrines would be quite a bit different. But this is really the key, one of the keys uh, to this passage of Scripture that we're reading here. And that is, I'm, I'm thankful that in my dad's case, it wasn't a matter of salvation. He was confused on doctrines after he got saved. But here in this Scripture, John is speaking of a similar danger, only it's really a much worse danger because he's talking about false doctrine and false teachers that get to people and influence them and keep them from ever coming to the knowledge of the truth. And we have to be very, very much aware that those kinds of things are out there, that there are false prophets out there, and we need to know the Word of God so we can stand up against that doctrine. Now, we want to read the text again tonight. We want to continue this thought that we began uh, about a month or so ago on phony prophets. So if you look at First John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1, John says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is that spirit of Antichrist where ye have heard that it should come, and even now is it already in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of the God, he that knoweth God heareth us, and he that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, I want you to glance back up the page uh, just a little bit there to the end of verse or chapter number 3. And there we see that John is speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who lives and indwells the Christian. He is the one who gives us our hope. And it is the Holy Spirit that convinces us that we truly are the children of God. And then moving here into chapter 4, there is a warning here by the Apostle John that there are other spirits. Other spirits will try to do the same thing. In other words, they will try to convince you also that you are a child of God. They will give you false assurance. They will cause you to believe a lie. And the false spirit wants you to think that you're saved and believe that everything is fine when in fact everything is not fine, and perhaps you have not really understood the gospel. And the world is full of people that are like that. They believe a false gospel, and thus they're clinging to a false hope. And so these scriptures are given to warn us about that. There are two spirits that are operating in the world, and there are only two spirits. The one spirit is the Holy Spirit of God, and the other is the spirit of Antichrist. And uh, the one spirit is the one who proceeds from God the Father and from God the Son. And the other spirits are those that proceed from their father, the devil. So there are only two identifiable spirits in the world. And every doctrine that's preached, every preacher that preaches, every church that you find, every temple, every synagogue, they're all inhabited by one of these two spirits. Either it will be the spirit of God or it's going to be the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit uh, of devils. 
Now, I can tell you in the beginning, and I think you know very well, that a mosque does not operate with the Spirit of God. A Jewish synagogue does not operate with the Spirit of God. A Buddhist temple doesn't operate with the Spirit of God. And sadly, and probably more insidiously, most churches do not operate under the Spirit of God. Now, Satan is behind the doctrines that are taught in most churches today. We can also say that Satan is behind the lack of doctrine that's taught in most churches. And either way, whether it's the lack of doctrine or it's just overt doctrine, uh, too much doctrine or not the right doctrine, Satan is trying to keep people from the truth. So either he's going to spike the message that's being preached with falsities or he's going to decimate that doctrine by watering it down and in some cases even removing the doctrine altogether from the, from, from the church. And so thus, in either case, he blinds people to the truth. Now, John is not here nearly as concerned as we are sometimes about being nice to those and nice about those that are preaching a false doctrine. And so he wasn't afraid to say that if you hear someone who's preaching a false doctrine, that doctrine comes from the devil. And he wasn't reserved enough and he wasn't refined enough to say, to say less than what he says in chapter 2, verse number 18, where he says, even now there are many antichrists. Or what he says in verse number 22 of that same chapter, who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. Now, most people will bristle when you use that kind of language in a church service. And they'll tell you, well, you're being divisive to the body of Christ. You shouldn't say such things. You're, you're splitting up good Christian brothers and sisters and by, by saying that someone's not preaching the truth and not just going along with their doctrine. But this is kind of the point of what John is saying here, isn't it? I think he's trying to tell us that those that teach false doctrine are not in the body of Christ. You don't have to worry about separating from the body of Christ. They're not even in the body of Christ. These are people that are trying to destroy the truth of the word. And so we have a warning here from the apostle not to let that doctrine get into the church. And what John says here about false teachers, false apostles, these false prophets, is not an uncommon way of speaking in the Bible. Paul used this kind of language. Peter, who is that gruff fisherman who said exactly what he was thinking most of the time, he didn't worry about toning it down when it came to false teachers. I want you to go back just a few pages, if you would, there in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2. And I think most of the evangelical world would be shocked if I had a platform like the Apostle Peter where I could stand up and say the very same things that Peter said to a group of people that, that aren't teaching the truth or to mention people that aren't speaking the truth. Now, if we we'll look at just a few, a few verses here in chapter 2 of Second Peter, verse number 1 tells us very clearly who Peter has in mind. He says, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Then if you'll skip down to verse number 12, we'll read here to the end of the chapter. It says, but these as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, 
having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of that prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed who were wallowing in the mire. Now, you just notice some of the things that Peter says in that passage. He says, brute beast. He says, eyes full of adultery. And you think about that. Uh, have you heard about the scandalous goings-on? I know you have among televangelists, among pedophilic Roman Catholic priests that the Roman Catholic Church hides from people. And folks, even some preachers and teachers in Baptist churches. This kind of thing go, goes on where, where the pastors and the leaders prey on vulnerable people that are in their congregations. Now, it's not my purpose to be a rumor mill in this pulpit, but it's true, I think we know this to be true, that one of the largest fundamental Baptist ministries in the country was led by a man who had an affair, and still people revere him like he was the pope of the entire movement. Now, Paul says this, or rather Peter says it, and, and I, re, I repeat this reverently, but in this case he says the false prophet Balaam about him, he said God used a dumb ass to rebuke his madness. God can speak in any way he wants to speak to call these people down. And Peter calls them servants of corruption. And then he uses this this powerfully descriptive proverb at the very end there. He says, The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow which was washed to her wallowing in the mire. I know that people think that that's harsh. You're not going to hear it spoken in pulpits today. But unless, unless you think that that kind of language and that kind of attitude was not the temperament of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to listen to what he said. Matthew 7, verse 6, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. And then if you wanted to go to the book of Jude, you'll find there that Jude compares false teachers to sodomites. And he says that they are filthy dreamers. He says they're greedy, they're murderers like Cain. And even more that he adds to that. Now you can imagine that I could add or insert the names of many different preachers today and put them into the middle of my message today, I could name a lot of different people. As a matter of fact, I, I have a lot of names written down here. And I decided at the last moment, I'm just not going to read those. 
I'm not going to read those names. But you know, I'm not afraid to mention people's names. People aren't speaking the truth. I, I, I say it. I, I'll mention their names. But I'm not going to read my list of... No, I'm not going to read it. My, not, my list of, not my list of T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen and Joel Meyer and Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and Pope Benedict XVI and all those. You're not going to hear me say it tonight, not from the pulpit. So... I I might be a little bit reserved about what I say about false teachers, but I assure you that the apostles were not. They they were not going to hold back because this is a very serious error and it needs to be addressed. It is a serious error to have people that are not preaching the truth and make merchandise of people that teach lies, that lead people into hell. It's not... uh, uh, It's not something that we are to let go by without saying something about it. Now, in the last message... We're, we're trying to catch up a little bit here. But in the last message, I, I talked about the context of John's teaching. And if you look in the last part of the first verse, you can see the problem. He says, many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, before the end of the first century, there was already a flood of false doctrine that was pervading the church at that time. Uh, someone has remarked that by the end of the second century, that every possible... Uh, false doctrine that could be taught had already been tried and it had already been taught. And all those same doctrines keep be getting recycled down through the history of the church. So there aren't any new doctrines today. Every wild notion that you can think of has already been tried. Somebody's already thought about it. Somewhere in the distant past, going back all the way to the second century, somebody has already thought about all of these false doctrines that are being taught today. So every interpretation of Scripture has been tried. Now, that's actually good in some ways when, when you think about truth, and I'm glad that that happens because sometimes a thought will come to my mind and I'll be reading a scripture and I'll say, well, I wonder if this has ever been interpreted in that way. Is this, is this how this passage of scripture should be interpreted? And I think, well, I've never read it before. I've never seen that before. But then I read a little bit further and keep on reading and sure enough, I'll come across somebody, some Bible scholar who has said the same thing before. And the chances are he got it from somebody else that said it before. So these, if, if it's the truth, we're going to find it also recurring in church history. Uh, it's going to be traced back to the Lord Jesus Christ if it is the truth, because God is the source of all truth. And so when John says here, many false prophets are gone out in the world, the people knew what he was talking about. They were all around them. There were false prophets everywhere. Now, in one of the earlier messages in this this series of 1 John, I mentioned that there was a man by the name of Serenthus who taught that Christ, that Jesus was not virgin-born, said that he was not the incarnate Son of God, but he said God took over a man's body. And then when... uh, Jesus, the man Jesus, he took over his body. And then when he was ready to be crucified, then the Spirit of God left that body. Well, Serenthus was a contemporary of John. John knew him. Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, related a story in which John went into a public bathhouse in Ephesus, and he was just about ready to step down into the water when he saw that Serenthus was there. And then John rose up, Polycarp says he fled from the bathhouse before he bathed, and he said, let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of truth, is within. So that is the context in which John is writing this. 
And just like Christian bookstores today with television stations, with radio stations, with churches all over our country that are flooded with false teachers, and again, I dare not mention their names, but uh, just like that, the bathhouse in John's day was visited by brute beasts and dogs and hogs. So the Apostle John was surrounded by attacks on deity, by the activity of demons, by the cunning ability of Satan to adapt to any culture in which he's in to pervert the truth. And so John begins the fourth chapter by saying, Beloved, believe not every spirit. He says, Not every spirit is of God. And we need to heed that warning because not everything that has the name Christian attached to it is actually Christian. Not every person who says that they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everybody who stands behind a pulpit and preaches from a Bible is a Christian. Many of these people are not in the body of Christ. In fact, there are more false deceivers than there are true disciples. Well, let's go on with this. That's what we talked about in the first message, and I thought it was necessary for us to review, catch up just a little bit to get back on track. We need to see what John's saying in this section. So secondly... And I'm not going to get finished with this point. This sermon goes on. It's got some other parts. But secondly is the content of false teaching. And this is a very broad subject when you're going to talk about the content of false teaching or false teachers. And in order to discover all of it, what you'd have to do is you'd have to study all the false religions there are in the world. And you'd have to discover all the peculiarities and the nuances of all their doctrines. And I appreciate many ministries that dedicate themselves to doing things like that. People that train others to uh, deal with Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, and they train people to learn about that doctrine and how to refute it. I like the ministry of men like Richard Bennett and of Bart Brewer before he died. Both of them were Roman Catholic priests, and uh, they know that system. They know what Roman Catholics believe, and they spent their lives telling people how to refute Roman Catholicism and, and ministering to Roman Catholics. But in order to address all of these things, we would have to be versed in all the nuances of many different religions. But the good news about this is we really don't have to do that. We don't have to know all of the heresies that people teach. All we have to know is the truth of the Word of God. What we have to know is what God actually says. And then when you hear a heresy, you'll know it. And then you'll be able to refute that doctrine. Now, the ministries that deal with training people, as I said, in, in Roman Catholicism or Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, and so forth, uh, those ministries are good. They already know where the attack is coming from before it comes, and that is a good thing. But there is, there, there is a sense and there, there are some generalities about the content of false teaching that sort of runs across the whole spectrum of, of all these different groups, especially when you're talking about the cults. In, in the second and third verses, John says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now is it already in the world. So the test that John proposes to expose a false teacher is the content of the teachings. What is the message that he gives? Now we need to know the word, and we need to remember uh, what the Word of God says. And here is a key to false teachings, or, and really a, a key to the cults themselves, a key to exposing their false doctrine is a word that you need to remember, and it's the word Christology. 
Christology. And that means the study of the person and the attributes of Christ. What does that person teach about Christ? And anyone who alters the biblical data on the person of Christ, anyone who removes the distinguishing characteristics that make Christ different from all others, is a false prophet. Christology is actually the subject that John started 1 John with. Uh, False prophets, especially those that are among the cults, tamper with the person and the work of Christ. Now, I want to give you tonight just some subheadings here under Christology. Now, there are many, many different things that we could talk about, but we'll just, we'll just briefly mention some subheadings under Christology. The first one would be the preexistence of Christ, that Christ existed before his birth. And that's a very important doctrine, extremely important doctrine, because if Christ did not exist before his birth, then it means that there is no doctrine of the Trinity. An essential attribute of God is that he is eternal. And so if Christ did not exist before his birth, then he couldn't be God. See, the doctrine of the Trinity falls if Christ is not the eternal God. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons know that. And so what they do is they take away this essential part of Jesus Christ, and they will say things like Jesus was created. Christ was a created being. Or they'll say, he is some sort of a lesser God. And the JWs are particularly insidious about that by saying that Jehovah is God. They will say that, but they won't tell you that Jesus Christ is Jehovah. They'll come to your door, and they'll tell you all the wonderful virtues of Jesus Christ. And a Jehovah Witness will even tell you that we are saved by Jesus Christ. And that sounds pretty good at first, except somebody's lying. Either Jesus is lying or they are lying because Jesus claimed to be God and they say that he's not God. And so if they're saying then that Jesus saves us, then they're also saying that we're being saved by a liar. And that's because his teachings conflict with theirs. But Jesus did claim to be eternally existent. He said that he's one with the Father. And that meant that he was one, he is one in essence. And it means more than just saying, well, I am in agreement with the Father. And that's how they would interpret it. I and my Father one. Well, they're in agreement with one another. Well, Jesus meant much more than that. And there are direct statements in the Bible. And there are indirect statements in the Bible that speak of Christ as God and his eternality as God. Now, let me give you some of the direct statements just to sample this. John 10, verse 30, that I quoted just a moment ago, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus said, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And then in John 14, verses 7 through 10, Jesus said, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, that it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works." So those are direct statements from Jesus that he is the eternally existent God. 
Paul said it also directly in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 6, and also in second, or in Colossians, rather, uh, chapter 2, verse number 9. In Philippians 2, he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In Colossians 2, 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Then we have indirect statements that are in the Bible that tell us that Jesus is God and eternally existent. In Luke chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins be forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they knew very well what Jesus was claiming to be. He claimed to be God. That's why he said, I'm going to forgive your sins. In John 10, verse 32 and 33, Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do ye stone me? Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Then we have another indirect statement in the text that we have tonight here in 1 John, where John says, Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Now notice there that John says, Jesus Christ is come. Now everybody else is born. You you ask people, uh, when were you born? You don't ask them, how old are you and when did you come? You say, when were you born? But John says, Jesus is come come. And that is his indication that Jesus was before, that Jesus came from some other place, that he existed before Bethlehem. So those are indirect statements, and we have direct statements. And the Mormons and the JWs and anyone else that denies the full deity of Christ, his, his, his eternality, his equality with the Father, that Jesus Christ is a member, uh, a person of the Godhead, he is part of the Trinity, that he is preexistent or was preexistent is a false prophet. Anybody that denies that. And then while I'm here, I might also mention to you an equally serious error of people that say that Christ is God when they say that Christ is actually the Father. Christ is the Father. And they say there is no Trinity because Jesus Christ is the Father. When he says, I and the Father, uh, I and my Father are one, he means he is the Father. And so he doesn't exist in three persons. That's the position of the oneness Pentecostals, among other people. But the Greek construction there in, in John 10, verse 30, doesn't allow that Jesus is speaking of one person. He means They're one in essence. He means they're one in nature and they're one in attributes. And then we could go to the book of Genesis and we wouldn't get very far into the text of Scripture before we would read these words by God. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then in the 26th verse... And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every other or over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So in these passages, the Trinity is presupposed, the preexistence of Christ as God is presupposed. Now, secondly, in Christology, there is the incarnation of Christ. Of course, that means that Christ is God in human flesh. 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this one because we've dealt with the incarnation extensively uh, in this series and on other occasions. Going back to Christmas, I, I preached a message both on the virgin birth and on the incarnation. Uh, the Apostle John speaks of it in the first chapter here in First John. And then in verse number 2 of our text, he says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. So there, Jesus is in the flesh, God in the flesh. And then in the first chapter, John was specific about that. He, he talked about hearing him and seeing him and touching him. Uh, he said he's real. And then we have four gospel accounts of his life that give us daily activities. So there's nobody that can be serious about who Jesus is who can deny the incarnation. And so if you clear the first hurdle that Jesus is God, then you have to understand that he is God in the flesh because we see it here in the gospel accounts and in many other places. Now thirdly, in Christology, there is the sinlessness of Christ, that Christ is faultless. Now, all of these things are very important. What a person teaches about Christ, well, what do they think about his person, his attributes, is important. This is extremely important, the sinlessness of Christ. Well, if we only had the letter of 1 John, and John, of course, here is trying to show us that there are false prophets and the difference in them and how we know that they're false. If we only had 1 John, could we find here the sinlessness of Christ? Well, we could start with the first chapter where John speaks of the incarnation and he also speaks of the fellowship that Christ has with the Father. And in the fifth verse of the first chapter, he says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, the third verse says that our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And that would, of course, imply that the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, are in fellowship with one another. And the basis for that fellowship, or the fellowship we have with them, is that we walk in the light, as he's in the light. Now, light versus darkness is something that we've studied several times in in 1 John, the metaphors that Jesus uses to describe righteousness versus sinfulness and describe evil versus good and so on, light versus darkness. And so if God is light and Christ is God, then what is the conclusion? That Christ is light. And in fact, that's exactly what he said in John 8, 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, there are two important conclusions that come from that verse. Jesus said, I am, and that's the name of Jehovah God. And he said, I am light. And that is the equivalent of saying, I am sinless. And if you follow me you will not walk in the darkness. So he identifies himself as God, and the JWs and the Mormons, they miss that or they simply lie about it. He makes identification with God, and so by default, if he is God, he must be sinless because God is sinless. Well, that's, uh, that's sort of an indirect way of getting to it, to prove that Jesus is sinless, but there's something even, even greater, more direct than that in 1 John 2 verse 1. He says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
Now there's another contrast. And the contrast there is our sinfulness versus Christ's righteousness. Christ stands as our advocate to God because he's the one that's sinless and we're not. And so he is designated here as Christ the righteous. And that means he's the righteous one. It means he's the only righteous one. And then the second verse adds another dimension to the argument of the righteousness of Christ because John says, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So there, John introduces us to the substitutionary atonement for sin. Because Christ is sinless, he's able to satisfy all of the legal requirements of God's justice. And so Christ is our justification. And by now, you know very well that when we speak of justification, it's the same thing as saying that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. His righteousness stands good for our righteousness. He's the one that puts us into right standing with God. Now, I'm going to stop with that. I'm going to suspend our lesson with that, and that's the final thought for tonight. And you can see here by what what we've already discussed, that when you start dallying around, messing around with the person and the attributes of Christ, this is not an insignificant matter. And this is why we can't, in any kind of good conscience, stand in front of a congregation and tell anybody that a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or anyone else that, that mixes up, that denies the attributes of Christ, that, that says that they're Christians and yet they don't believe who Christ is, we can't condone that. We can't call them Christians. That's because they have no doctrines that are anything like what we find in the Scripture concerning Christ. And equally bad, and perhaps more subtle than those groups, is the preaching of those that claim that they are Orthodox Christians. They're in Orthodox Christianity, and yet John says they have doctrines that are of demons. And again, I could tell you who they were, but I won't who they are. I'm not going to mention the names, but there's a whole list of them if you need to know who they are. So John and Paul, Peter, Jesus, none of them were afraid to attack this subject. False prophets are antichrist. They're dogs, they're hogs, they're beasts, they're reprobates concerning the faith. And that might be harsh. People think, well, that's very harsh. But you tell me, what do you call somebody who wants to lead you and your family right into the pit of hell? Think of a good name for them. And then let me know what it is, and I'll preach it next week. What's a good name for somebody like that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've brought us into this place tonight. And Lord, uh, such important doctrines that are here. And we could spend hours and hours and hours uh, telling people and explaining how important this is to our faith and how these are, are doctrines that cannot be laid aside. We cannot put these away. We can't pass over them. We have to stand to proclaim the truth of your words and expose the errors of those who deny these fundamental doctrines of the faith. Bless our people. We thank you, Lord, for their interest in your word. And may we take this word and use it in some way this week to help someone else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.